How are we doing? How's everybody doing? Good. All right. So we're going to jump in here. So as you may know, we're in a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I just feel like maybe we should pray to start today. I don't know. I feel like maybe we should just pray real quick. Lord, I just pray that you would teach us, Lord. Lord, through your word, that you would speak to us as we, we read about your kingdom and the ways of your kingdom, Lord. I just pray that you do a work in us today, Lord. Amen. Amen. So last week, we left off with this line from Jesus in Matthew 5.20. It says, uh, let's read it again. It says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, like the religious elite of the day, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you were not here last week, Jesus is saying, um, unless you move past kind of the surface level righteousness that's about simply behavior. And make no mistake, behavior matters to Jesus a lot. But unless you move past that to kind of a deeper level of righteousness that's about a heart that's transformed. To the point that love is your driving motivation, that the, the, the undercurrent of your life is love, then there's no way you to experience this new reality of the kingdom. And then from here to the end of chapter 5, Jesus lays out six case studies of this new kind of righteousness at a deeper heart level that he's after. And, and I forewarn you, it's like straight out of a soap opera, some of this stuff. It's like the nitty-gritty and very human and honest. It deals with anger and lust objectification of other human beings. He deals with divorce, with oaths, which is essentially how we manipulate other people, and on down the list. And so we have a great couple of months on tap, okay? All right, so first up on the docket for today is Jesus on anger. What does Jesus have to say about anger? So we'll take a look at chapter 5, verse 21. He starts like this. He says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. <clears throat> so I, I have this uncanny ability to see everything that's wrong with the situation. With the church, with the, our church, with our culture, with my life. And the issue with that is I live on planet Earth, right? So I have a little bit of a problem on my hands. Because the world I live in is anything but perfect. In fact, at times it's not even very good. And so there are times that I am I'm frustrated and upset and mad at the imperfections in the world and in my life. But the thing is, my anger isn't like punch a hole in the wall kind of anger. It's like slow burn anger. And it leaks out of my mouth, right? Sarcastic comment here. A dig there, and it, and it can be hurtful to the people I love. So all that to say, okay, Jesus, what, do I, what are you saying here? Because I'm all ears, right? Because I want to be free from this. 
So I found Jesus' teaching here to be super helpful, and I hope that it's the same for you. Let's just work through it. And so, okay, so let's take a look again at, at chapter 5, verse 21. It says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. And that's what a rabbi in the first century said right before he was about to quote the Law and the Prophets, or what we now call the Old Testament. And he quotes it. He says, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, the first part of that, you shall not murder, is a verbatim quote from Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. It's number six in the Ten Commandments. The second half, whoever murders will be subject to judgment, is referring to all the commands in the law about what to do with, a, with murder or manslaughter. So now at a surface level, this seems like a pretty straightforward command. Don't murder people. Y'all got that? Okay. Yeah, that's doable, right? No problem. I'll make sure not to do that this coming week. And this is the problem with the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in the language of Jesus. It's a surface level kind of righteousness that's just about behavior. And it's easy to kind of check the box off the list. Yeah, don't murder people. No problem. Got that one. But watch what Jesus is up to. Verse 21 again. He says, you have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So when Jesus says, you have heard it said, he's saying, there's a popular interpretation of how this command was read in Jesus' day. And then he says, but I tell you, meaning here's how you actually the right way to read this command. And he says, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Uh, a couple things you need to know here. First, there are two words in Greek for anger. One is like a temper. It's a quick flare-up of anger. It's when you're like cut off in traffic or whatever. Or if you're a parent and your, uh, your six-year-old spills Kool-Aid on the white carpet after being warned ten times, right? It's just like this flare-up. And it's there, you're mad, and then five, ten minutes later, it's kind of gone. That was called thumos anger. But there's another word for anger in Greek, orge anger. And it was a deeper kind of anger that is brewed over. Where you replay the offense in your mind's eye, and you get stuck there. And you won't move on, and pretty soon, even if you want to, you can't move on. It's like a grudge that you carry around. Now, now both types of anger are lousy, but the second one is toxic. And that's the word used by Jesus here. Secondly, you need to know that in the Greek, this is a participle. So literally, it's whoever is being angry or whoever is remaining angry. We might say nursing a grudge. So here's what Jesus says. It's not, he's, he's not saying that you won't ever get mad, right? That's, it's an emotion. It happens occasionally. But we have to get rid of it as quickly as possible. Because whoever is remaining angry, nursing a grudge, will be subject to judgment. It's the same word as the judgment of, of a murderer. Same word. Jesus says, goes on, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, now, raka was a quasi-expletive insult, all right? It means something like empty in the head. So you can kind of think of what we might equate to that in today's language. And Jesus says, you toss out a word like that, it's answerable to the court. And the word court is actually Sanhedrin in Greek, which is essentially the supreme court of ancient Israel. So this is really heavy language, 
And Jesus is not done. He says, and anyone who says, you fool. Now the word here in Greek, it's where we get the word moron. And it means somebody who's both unintelligent and immoral. This word is used all through Hebrew wisdom literature. So for example, Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools or morons despise wisdom and instruction. Or one of my personal favorites, Proverbs 17.28, even fools are thought wise if they keep silent. So there are some people who are fools, right? Who are unintelligent and immoral. Sure, the Bible isn't denying that. But when you use that language to insult someone, notice you've upped the ante, right? You've moved from raka, an insult, stupid idiot, to you're a fool, which is a judgment call on a whole person. You're immoral. From shaming their behavior to shaming their character itself. And keep in mind, ancient Israel, this is in honor-shame culture, which America is fast becoming, right? Due to social media, celebrity culture, political division, we're actually fast becoming an honor-shame culture. But the idea here is you shame somebody, Jesus says, you will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now that phrase, fire of hell, I know that is a trigger for a lot of us. So just a quick word on it before we move on. The word hell, in all honesty, in English is misleading because it has a ton of imagery attached to it. So much imagery that I'm guessing in your mind's eye right now you have a picture of hell. And that idea may or may not be anywhere in the writings of the Old Testament or the New Testament. So when you read the fire of hell, don't imagine in your mind's eye like Dante's Inferno. The word that's translated hell is the word Gehenna. It was actually a very real place in Jesus' day that all of Jesus' listeners would have known about. It was a small valley on the south side of Jerusalem. So if you're a first century Jewish person and you're there in a crowd, hell was a very real place. It was like right over there. And the thing about Gehenna was, this is centuries before waste management or recycling. So if you had garbage, you would toss it over the wall down into this valley. It was a garbage dump where refuse was burned 24 hours a day. Hence the language about the fire. Here's why it matters. Over time, this valley became a word picture or a metaphor for the judgment to come. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. So I'm not here to explain away what Jesus is up to. But for today, I just want to make one point before we go on. You know, we have this language, in particular, if you grew up in the church, about how God sends people to hell. I really don't think that language is helpful at all. What does Jesus say here? He says that if you give in to anger and you let it infect your heart like a cancer, then you are in danger of hell, right? And I think we get mixed up. I don't think we realize just how true it is that the life to come is a continuation of the trajectory that you're already on in this life. So who you will become and the life you will experience forever is a continuation of who you are now and the life you're living here and now. The reality is that most people who don't follow Jesus now, don't want to follow Jesus now, don't want to live for the way of Jesus now, would be miserable in the kingdom of heaven. Because the kingdom of heaven is where Jesus is king. It is by definition where we live under the rule and the reign of Jesus. If you don't want to live that way now, the odds are you would not really want to live that way forever. People who end up in hell are not the kind of people who would, or I don't think even could, enjoy the kingdom of heaven. 
It's not so much that God sends people to hell as much as we have free will. We have a decision to make every single day. What life do I choose? What way do I choose, right? The kingdom of heaven or something else as your future? It's a continuation of every single decision you make. Dallas Willard would say this little line. He says, hell is the best that God can do for some people. My point is that what Jesus is getting at here is, listen, if you give in to anger, you're possibly putting yourself on a trajectory that has the potential to take you somewhere you don't want to go. Now, this is a little bit tricky because it feels like a pretty heavy and somber warning for some anger or like calling somebody stupid, which I'm guessing most of us in this room do occasionally. Yeah? No, nobody. Just me. And we kind of write it, but we kind of write it off as trivial, right? Somebody cuts you off, you're like, yeah, you dumb dumb. And there's something in me that goes, eh, come on. I mean, I know it's not good to call people an idiot, but like, what's the big deal? Once in a while. And here's just this, Jesus saying it is a big deal. Jesus takes this very seriously. And if you're new to a church, you should know, um, we just think that Jesus was the most intelligent human being to ever live, and a brilliant teacher. Obviously, we think he's more than just a brilliant teacher, but we think his insight into the human condition is so profound. And so there are layers to what Jesus is doing here. Layer one is pretty straightforward. Jesus is saying that murder comes from the same place in the heart that an insult comes from, or a snide comment, or a sarcastic dig. And we need to eliminate this kind of anger, because if we eliminate this kind of anger, we eliminate murder altogether. The overwhelming theme of the Bible is to get rid of anger as soon as possible. Ephesians 4.31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Colossians 3.8, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Every single time anger is mentioned for humans in the Bible, it's negative. Every single time. Now, here's the thing. We get angry, right? We have to understand that. It's a natural physical response. It happens. You get angry. There's a flash of it. It happens. That's not sin, clearly. The question is, are you entitled to it? And for how long? How long? Two weeks? Three months? 20 years? When is it? The reason no one has a coherent answer is you're not entitled to it. It's not for you. It's God's business. Anger resides in the lap of fools, it says in Ecclesiastes. Resides is an interesting word, right? It means to inhabit. Jesus and the writers of the New Testament over and over make the point that we need to get rid of anger as quickly as possible. So that's kind of surface level. But at a deeper level, Jesus is doing something even more helpful than that. He's saying, then he's even more helpful than saying just like, don't get angry. Because if that's all Jesus said, hey, everybody, anger's really lousy, don't get angry, then most of us would hear that and think, okay, like, anger's really lousy, I want to try really hard this week not to get angry. And so we try that until Thursday, and then we're back to where we started. What Jesus is doing, I think, is far more helpful. 
That's not a bad thing to do, right? Try, try not to be angry. But what he's doing here is far more helpful. He's like a doctor, and his diagnosis here is that we all get sucked into anger. And here's the vicious cycle. This is how it works. Somebody does something to us, right? What we wanted to happen did not. Something goes wrong. We take it as an insult on our person. And so now we're mad, and we give in to it. Sometimes it's a conscious decision. Most of the time it's not. And we say things like, you know, how could she do this to me? And then we play the self-righteous victim. We're almost conditioned to think of ourselves as the innocent victim. And everybody else is the guilty perpetrator. And so we want to think of everything in black and white, good or evil. I'm the good guy. He or she is the bad guy. We hate gray. We hate to own our part. We hate to like say, yeah, we had a disagreement, and actually it was like you know, 49% my fault. We don't want to do that. We don't want to say that. We want to write him or her off. And we want to claim, I'm the innocent victim, I'm the oppressed. And this is where it starts to get really nasty. We give our heart over to contempt. And contempt comes out of this place of self-righteousness, where you think of yourself as better than the person who wronged you. Now, a lot of time that's not true, right? You're, actually, you're not actually better, you're just a different kind of messed up, maybe. But in order for us to justify the illusion in your mind's eye that you're better than them, and to buy into that lie, you have to write not off only their behavior, but their character. And you have to make a judgment call on their whole person. And you have to skew reality to view them through a distorted lens, where you have to see them as evil and yourself as good. Them as guilty, yourself as innocent which means you have to highlight all their weaknesses and ignore all, ignore all their strengths and then do the opposite for yourself, right? Anybody convicted right now? Listen, this has convicting been convicting to me all week, so now you get to deal with it. <laughs> there you go. So what happens is you give over to contempt, which is when you start to look down your nose at somebody, not just their behavior, but their character. And from there to where it leaks out of your mouth and kind of the verbal violence and insults and sarcastic comments and gossip-filled conversations with a coworker or somebody in your community or church. And that leads to hell on earth. We harm other people. We harm ourselves, our own soul. We harm our community and our church and our workplace, our city. Anger left unchecked is toxic. It's damaging and it's destructive. That's usually where it ends, right? But sometimes it escalates into domestic abuse, violence, divorce, betrayal, murder, so forth and so on. This is the vicious cycle. Jesus is saying, listen, all this starts when you get angry, and in that moment, conscious or subconscious, you give in to it. Anger's like Frodo with the ring. He's got to get rid of it. And the longer he holds on to it, the deeper it goes and the more destructive it is. I mention that for a couple reasons. Number one, it's true. Number two, I like Lord of the Rings. So I'm going to mention it. I'm going to work it in once in a while. <laughs> Jesus is saying, don't give in to anger. If you go down that road, it will lead you to hell, he says. So on that chipper note, how do we break the vicious cycle of anger? 
Well, I love Jesus. He goes right into practical small steps you and I can take to move forward into the reality of the kingdom. Here's the first one. Hypothetical scenario, Matthew 5, 23. Jesus says, therefore, here's what you do. If you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So this is actually kind of funny. I think Jesus is kind of lightening the the mood a little bit. But it's a hypothetical scenario. Where's Jesus teaching the Sermon on the Mount? Anybody know? Galilee, near the Sea of Galilee. There's one altar in first century Israel, and it was in the Temple of Jerusalem. That's 80 miles away. So in Jesus' scenario, he's saying, listen, the, the one time a year you travel to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice, you're there, you realize that you and your neighbor haven't hashed out that issue that you're irritated about, about who's going to mow that area between your houses. What you're supposed to do, Jesus says, leave there, book it 80 miles, all the way back home, knock on your neighbor's door, say, hey, we need to talk. I'm sorry, let's hash this out. And hopefully you get it sorted out, then you turn, you run 80 miles all the way back to Jerusalem to give your gift at the altar. It's funny because it's extreme, but Jesus is saying that's how serious it is that we reconcile. He's saying that your relationship with God is tied up with your relationships with other people. Like it or not. So you might be here today, and you might feel distant from God. You might feel in worship like you don't get it. It might be like you pray, and you feel like it's just a concrete barrier in the sky. There's all sorts of reasons for that, but one potential reason may be that you're not at peace with somebody. And therefore, you're not at peace with God. So Jesus is saying, if you're not right with someone, go and deal with it. The next story, hypothetical number two, verse 25. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. The judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you that you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, it's another hypothetical scenario. And in this one, two people get into some kind of legal dispute and are literally on the road to an appointment with the court. And Jesus advises, here he says what to do. He says, you said a lot of court. Don't go to court over it. Otherwise, you might end up in prison. And there was this thing in the ancient world we don't have anymore because it's so illogical, but it was called debt prison. Where there was, if there was a disagreement over money and you lost the case, you were put into prison until you or your family could pay off the debt. For obvious reasons, a lot of people died in prison. Jesus is saying, you do not want that. Think about what all is at stake. So go and deal with your dispute and deal with it quickly. Don't let it fester. Nine times out of ten, we do the opposite, don't we? If you're anything like me, if I'm in like a dispute with somebody... I don't talk about it with them openly and honestly until I absolutely have to. I put it off for as long as possible. And guess what happens? Does it get better or worse? Usually it's way worse, right? Most of the time, if it's left to fester in my heart or in theirs, by the time we actually sit down to talk about it, we're not rational anymore. We're emotional. And I'm the innocent victim, always. (laughs) And how could you? And it's not always easy or simple. But Jesus' point here, I think, is it's great advice. Deal with it quickly. 
As Paul says later, like, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So to summarize, what is Jesus saying? Basically, break the vicious cycle of anger. If you're at odds with somebody, go to them. Make peace with them as best you can. And don't like delay or procrastinate. Of course, that raises all sorts of questions. What if they don't listen to me? What if they won't ever even meet with me? What if they want to, you know, they want me to give them $50,000 and drag me to court anyway? All sorts of questions that Jesus does not have the time to nuance out. But the point, though, is pretty simple. Simple, but not easy, right? Especially in our culture. Our culture is basically saying the exact opposite of this. There's so much anger right now and contempt, if not full-on rage in our culture. Of course, the, the worst examples are the mass shootings. This last election cycle was a case study in anger and contempt. There's so much anger right now over the brokenness of our nation and our world, over the widening gap between the rich and the poor, over the widening gap between the two Americas, over globalism and nationalism, over secularism in the church. There's just so much anger and contempt and cynicism. There's something under the surface of our culture that says anger should fuel your fight for injustice. And a lot of times the fight is against something we need to work on or get rid of, but culture is literally saying you need to get mad, then you need to go online and get all your friends and family mad because that's how we change the world. We all get mad and we type a sentence into a device made by a slave. That's how we change injustice in the world. Is that working? No. Not at all. So this is so countercultural. And even if you're like, oh, I'm, just, I'm not really into the anger thing, most of us just aren't very good at relational conflict. Few of you are. We love you. I'm really, I'm really good at sarcasm and making you feel guilty. It's like an art form. It's a gift I have. So all that to say, this is so against the flow of our culture. Our culture has a toxic relationship with anger. But I, for one, want to break the cycle of anger. I want this church to be a place that breaks the cycle of anger and demonstrates a different way, rather than just following the culture. Amen? Amen. Amen. I just appreciate the word once again. Uh, it's always a convictor. Uh, so I just, I just want to encourage you to deal with your stuff, okay? Um, <laughs> I could have used a different word, but I chose not to. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's let's not let's not carry baggage around, okay? Let's let's leave it at the feet of Jesus and and uh, get that taken care of. So, it, yeah, if you if you need further uh, further cleansing, there's Sozo. I just want to remind you of that uh, inner healing ministry. I mean, seriously, we, there are past issues we need cleaned out of our memory banks, uh, renewed, redeemed. So Jesus can do that. Um, so let's let's take our anger issues to the Lord. Uh, let's take our contempt or whatever it is, um, bring that, let him renew our minds and renew our hearts and make us new. Uh, it's a lot, lot more fun to be free than to be chained to that. So, Lord, we do just 
turn our hearts before you, Lord. They're bare before you anyway, Lord. And Lord, we just admit who we are and that we need you, Lord. And so we ask that you would come and change us, Lord. Lord, your, your love never fails, Lord God. Love is, is the perfect way. And Lord, we ask that you would teach us how to love like you do, Lord. Forgive us for holding on to the past, for living in unforgiveness, especially, Lord, when we've been forgiven of so much ourselves. And Lord, we just thank you for your forgiveness and how you love us unconditionally and how you call us and invite us into that freedom, Lord. And so we give you our hearts and our lives and ask that you would make us new, Lord, so that the world might know who Jesus is. In Jesus' name, amen.